Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. You can remain standing if you'd like. You're going to pull out your Bibles and then turn them to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But it is good to be with you. I was let out of prison last night. I'm really glad they let me out. Uh, We finally, after two years and three months, they finally let us go back in and be our serve, begin our services again down at Oregon State Prison. Yes, wonderful. I told the guys down there, I said, we, we pray for you. Uh, a couple of us, uh, Boyd and I went down last week and then again last night. Um, and it's just such a great thing. I've known some of these guys for many, many years. And I've watched their, them grow in the grace of God. They're wonderful brothers. Some of them will probably be, be, be there the rest of their lives. But I'll tell you something, they know Jesus uh, and being with them and hear them sing and worship is, is just a wonderful experience. So it's good to be there. Also, I had a great experience last week being at the women's retreat. Um, I was the honorary woman that day, I think. <laughs> just for the day. My gender changed for that day alone. No, I never want to change my gender. I'm really pleased with whom God has made me. I'm just thankful for that. But we're going to begin our study here today, here at chapter 2. Paul continues here, he says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, or, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of his glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood... It, they would never not have crucified the Lord of glory, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through this spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Except even though thoughts of God who no one knows, except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is not appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, 
but we have the mind of Christ. You may be seated. A few weeks ago in one of my morning devotionals, I read this. He said, today you will be tempted to buy into the delusion that you are smarter than God, that your way is better than his. He says it is one of the functional contradictions of sin that even though somehow, some way reduces us all to be fools, at the very same time, it also convinces us that we are smarter than God. While we name ourselves as wise, we look at things that God does or things that he calls us to do as utterly foolish. And yet over and over again, God's wisdom is proved to be right and we are proved to be foolish in questioning God. I think of that verse in Isaiah 55, 8, where he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And surely that is nowhere better illustrated than the story of the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ by which we are saved. It is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth. We saw that in chapter 1 that the church of Corinth found itself in spiritual trouble. The young church that had a good beginning had lost its way, and the consequences were, were huge. Though the church of Corinth was born, birthed in the power and working of the Holy Spirit, and they were genuinely born again and indwelt by this Spirit, they found themselves living and conducting themselves on a very low spiritual plane. Why? because they were stunted in their spiritual growth. They were no longer growing, they were no longer maturing, and as such, they were actually reverting back to the ways that they used to think. So while they're genuinely saved, as Paul makes clear in chapter one, they are not growing in their faith. Their thinking had become carnal, and it had become worldly, and by that word carnal, I mean of the flesh, that which is of your natural flesh, not of your spiritual uh, not of your spiritual side, but rather that which is of your flesh. And it seems that the world was having a greater influence upon those, the church than, than they were having upon the world. We know this, that while say, salvation may give us as believers the capacity to understand spiritual truths, we also could not have ever known before we were saved that sanctification and spiritual transformation is actually a continuous process of growth in the life of a believer. Spiritual growth and transformation of the mind is not automatic. It's not something that just happens because it just we wake up every day and we grow. It's, we don't grow automatically as Christians. No, spiritual growth is a day-by-day -day process of learning how to die to our fleshly desires and carnal ways and yield ourselves to the wisdom of God that comes through the mind of Christ. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 12, he says, therefore I urge you brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renew of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Christian maturity, we know that rightly discerns the mind of Christ, only comes through surrender on a regular basis of dying to yourself, and of course, discipleship. It is a process of learning how to die to your flesh and all of its desires, and learning the way of Christ through faith. 
Christian maturity is only attained by steadfastly pursuing the mind of Christ at the expense of self, where now Jesus is actually predominant in our life. We're serving him with all that we have. Now, carnal Christians are immature Christians. Rather than Christ-centered, they are self-centered. They are fruitless rather than fruitful. And they actually become really the most miserable, I think, of all people because they have too much Jesus in them to be content with the world, and they have too much of the world in them to be content with Jesus. Now, carnal Christians kind of live this schizophrenic life with two minds, trying to straddle the fence between two worlds, one foot in the natural world and one foot in the spiritual world. And this is what had happened at Corinth. They were no longer living fully as to what God had called them to in their growth. Though they're genuinely born again, as Paul said, they're immature. They are stunted in their growth. And in time, they've drifted away from the simplicity and the purity of the gospel and become very carnal in their thinking, which, of course, really affected even the way they lived. And as a result, it led to a lot of conflicts within the church. There was a lot of infighting. There was quarreling with one another. There were divisions and cliques and splits over a variety of issues, some even over personalities of the who's who among the best teacher among them. They had their gossiping and slandering, their selfish ambition and jealousy and spiritual pride and even over the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I mean, people were seeking positions of honor at the expense of others. Some are abusing their own rights at the expense of others. There was sexual sin, even incest going on, no one questioning it. There was drunkenness even at the Lord's table. They were ungracious, they were, ungracious, they were unloving un and unforgiving and void of compassion. And what you saw is there's a lot of bad fruit. And even though these people had known the Lord and they had once walked strong with the Lord, they now have reverted back to this carnality that is now really steeped within the church. Listen. A church that is filled with carnal, immature Christians, where believers are no longer growing in the love of Christ, gaining the mind of Christ through humility and grace, can become a miserable environment to be in. I know some of you have been there. Uh, you've been in that kind of a situation. And what happens is, is you end up repelling people away from Jesus rather than drawing them to Jesus. But there's nothing more wonderful then when you see a new believer come to faith in the Lord, baby Christians, for me, are such a joy to be with. I mean, they can be a little bit messy as they learn how to walk and they learn how to eat. But however, you know, a church filled with spiritual immature babies that never grow up and still sucking bottles at some point, I mean, it's not too attractive. Little infant babies sucking on bottles and soiling their diapers, I mean, it's kind of to be expected. You kind of think, well, this is what little babies do. But when those babies turn five and six years old and even go on to be 20 years old and they're still sucking on bottles and messing their pants, you know, something's really wrong. <laughs> something's just not right. And a church that is filled with carnal, immature Christians just is not a joyful environment. You know, I've been in some churches like this and I have to tell you that at times in my life, it's been me. I've been the one who is carnal. I was the one who was fleshly minded. I was the one who was, you know, kind of walking in in two, two ways, one in the world and one with the Lord and too much Jesus to be content with the world and too much of the world to be content with Jesus and found myself miserable, drawn by my own flesh. And this is what Paul is up against when he comes to what he hears about the church at Corinth and all that was happening. So he confronted them, we saw in chapter one. 
with their foolishness of setting aside the wisdom of God for the wisdom of this world. In chapter one, he began by illustrating this contrast of the believer who knows Jesus, the spiritual man versus the natural man without Jesus, who has no capacity at all to understand spiritual things. He said in in verse 18 of chapter one, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the natural man, the unregenerate man, the one who doesn't know Jesus, the word of the cross is foolishness. It's silliness, it's craziness. It makes no logical sense at all to those who are perishing, those who don't know Jesus. The natural man, the unsaved man, cannot, will not, outside of the working of the Holy Spirit, ever be able to appreciate or comprehend the work of the cross as a means for salvation. It is a mind blower. And the point that Paul is making this, apart from the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit, no matter how intelligent, how educated, how talented, no matter how deep your understanding is of philosophy, You will never by your own merit ever be able to perceive or grasp spiritual things. Salvation is not about being smart enough. It's not about being brilliant enough to understand by human intellectual reason. It is a supernatural, spiritual work of God. Listen, when God works in your life, people, and you know the Holy Spirit is there, you are blessed. And if you have that experience of looking back in your life, says there was a time in my life when God just got a hold of me and I understood the truth of God, you are an exception. You are someone who God has opened your mind to see things you could never, ever have known before. Not only that, but we learned here, as Paul said, this is the way God always intended it to be. He said in in verse 27 of chapter one, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, the despise, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. God, in his complete sovereign wisdom, made his decision that people would never find him through natural human intellect and wisdom. And God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message of the cross to save those who would believe. For us people, if you know Jesus, you are so blessed. You're just so blessed. And the reason he does this, the why of this, is so that no one would be able to boast before God and say, well, I did it. You know, I mean, you know, God, God got a hold of me, but if it wasn't for me, man, I tell you, I, I just, you know, he's really lucky to have me after all. Um, and so I, I am a pretty good guy. And, and although, no, there's no credit that any of us can ever take in our salvation. It is a gift of God. Spiritual understanding, Paul is saying, requires a spiritual mind, which can only be attained through spiritual rebirth. And the Holy Spirit of God gets all the credit for all that he does. Boy, that should make you praise the Lord. If you have understanding, if the Lord's opening your heart to learn deeper spiritual things, it is a work of God's grace. It is a supernatural work of his grace. So here in chapter two, Paul here continues to discuss this contrast between the world's wisdom and God's wisdom, which leads into the contrast between a mature Christian and a carnal Christian. You know, one who has the capacity for the wisdom of understanding but doesn't grow because they're no longer attending to their spiritual life. They're no longer yielding to the working of the Spirit. 
He says in verse one, when I came to your brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Here again, you know, Paul is reminding them that when he first came to them with a message, he didn't come to them reliant on his own eloquence. He wasn't reliant on his own speech or his oratory skills. He didn't come to him, them in his human wisdom, nor did he come with his intellectual arguments to convince them. No, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness. I came to you in fear and in trembling. This is who I was. But I came to you also knowing this is the power of God. In other words, I didn't come to you resting or trusting in my own human ability at all. I didn't come to you to try to be a communicator who's simply communicating things to you. I wasn't trusting in myself or my ability to convince you. No, I came to you totally reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit to do that which only the Holy Spirit can do. Now, here's the point. Paul is refuting the futility of relying on carnal, worldly wisdom for spiritual understanding and growth. Remember, the Greeks, as we saw in our first study, they celebrated, loved oratory skills. In fact, the way something was said almost carried as much weight, or if not more weight, than what was said. They just, listen to this guy speak. Man, he's just so good. I mean, they loved intelligent arguments and debate. And Paul says, no, I didn't come to you in artful speech. I didn't come to you with oratory skills. I didn't come to you as some salesman trying to sell you a product, but rather he says, I came to you as an ambassador. I came to you as a representative of Christ Jesus and him crucified. You see, Paul understood this, that if someone could be talked into the kingdom by human argument, they could also be talked out of the kingdom by human argument. Now he understood this has to be a working of the Holy Spirit. You know, Acts, when you go through the book of Acts and you realize that before Paul came to Corinth on his second missionary journey, he had faced a lot of discouragements in his ministry. I mean, at Philippi, his ministry, we know, starts strong, uh, but it was ruined by the Jewish opposition to the message that offended them. And so we found himself even thrown in jail. Yet despite all that, there were some there in Philippi who came to Jesus. You know, that's why we have the book of Philippians. We have, you know, the testimony, there were some who received the Lord. We know this, that when he made his way down to Th Thessalonica and Berea, but he faced a lot of opposition there. Nonetheless, there were many whose lives were saved eternally and transformed by the foolish message of the cross. In Athens, when he goes down there at the Areopagus, uh, Paul reasons and he debates with the scholars and the philosophers, and he had very little positive results, at least what we can tell in scripture. You see, if Paul was trusting in his intellect and his debating skills, that could have been very discouraging for him but he had learned the power of God that comes through this message of the cross. See, though Paul is in fact a brilliant scholar, and he was, I mean, he could have overwhelmed his audience in Corinth with all of his intellectual arguments, but he came in humility, not in human wisdom. He knew that his own confidence was not in his keen abilities, but in his reliance upon the Holy Spirit to open the hearts of people who need the Lord. 
He came to them in simplicity, not gimmickry. In 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says to them in the second book, he says, we reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hidden behind the veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, really, if you look at this, the real goal of the spiritual leader is not to simply get a lot of people into a room. That's not the goal. That's not the, the goal of, of the Lord for us. You know, but the goal is to present a genuine, simple, pure gospel that is completely reliant on the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and to give understanding to the believer. And he tells us why in verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Why? Because if salvation is truly going to save you, it needs to be accomplished through the genuine working of the Holy Spirit, not the genius or of human schemes or of methods that seek to bring salvation. You see, you can appeal to people at a concert with some climactic moment, hyped up concert where everybody says, well, let's come to the altar. It's kind of, this is the cool thing to do. Everybody comes up, but the question is, are they really, they really saved? You know, it's not a matter of being put in the right mood or the right task. This is the spirit of God. It's got to work in your heart. You see, faith grounded in the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, however, cannot be undermined, Paul says. You know, Paul's decided instead to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is critical because what does this mean for us? This means that this very simple gospel is a perfect tool for God to save sinners. We don't have to alter it. If there's any fault with the message of the gospel, we don't need to change it or do anything because it is perfect. God doesn't need my cleverness. He doesn't need my salesmanship to get his work done. Otherwise, we might be able to take credit for it. You see, to change the gospel in any way is to distort it and is to really present another gospel. But God chooses to use the, the simple, foolish, offensive message to save those who will believe. And when they're saved, you know, God gets all the glory. He says in verse 6, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, however Paul says, you know, we do speak a wisdom among those who are mature believers and, and those who don't. We know that they have the capacity for learning that which is spiritual. Now, Paul mentions these two ideas here. He's, first of all, he speaks of God's wisdom in a mystery. And then he talks about hidden wisdom. He says, predestined for the ages of our glory. That word mystery, when you see it in the New Testament, we see it often as it's re reference to the gospel. It's not there used as what we might think of a mystery movie or something we might, I like mysteries, I, 
I read mysteries. I'm really fascinated by them. But it doesn't mean that which is like a whodunit that you might see there. That word mysterion that is there, it simply means that which was once hidden but is now revealed. You know, mystery or hidden wisdom is God's wisdom that was once hidden but has now been made known in the present age by those who believe. Now, the plan of the gospel was hidden. It was secret until the time of Christ's death and resurrection that was predestined by God before the foundations of the earth. Listen, the Old Testament prophets, they didn't see it. They didn't know it. They didn't know the secret. It was a secret. But he says, now God's wisdom is being revealed through the message of the gospel. I want to just share this. Beware, people, of any message, no matter how fascinating and impressive it may seem to you on the outside, that seeks to add or diminish what Christ accomplished on the cross. This is a perfect message. The wisdom of God is now revealed, still begins and ends with Christ alone and his work alone. The wisdom of God that is now revealed still begins and ends with Christ. And so, of course, the leaders, he said, who if they had crucified life, they had no idea when they crucified the Lord that this was his plan. He says, if the rulers of this age had truly understood the wisdom of God and the eternal consequences of rejecting God, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. God's hidden wisdom we know is hidden from Satan. Satan actually thought when Jesus died on the cross that day, that it was God's great defeat. But it turned out to be the greatest defeat of Satan, where God gets all the glory once again. And this is the irony, that the very ones who hated and killed Jesus were actually carrying out the plan of God when they did it. They foolishly thought they were ridding themselves of a nuisance, of a problem, but what they didn't know, that they were actually crucifying the very Lord of glory, God incarnate who came to offer up his life for sinners. You see, the natural world with all of its wisdom cannot and will never be able to comprehend the things of God. It can't. It is a supernatural, spiritual working of God from beginning to end. He says in verse 9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, nor ear and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, and that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, Paul here is quoting from Isaiah 64, 4. And he said that God intended to keep this plan hidden until a certain time in the future. Now, people often misquote this verse uh, for a different, uh, take it out of context. You know, it says, well, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, that which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And they usually kind of take this as, wow, God's got something in store for us. It's amazing. We don't know what it is. Of course, they refer to it as perhaps being heaven or something in the future. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, yeah, it was a secret. He says, but for to us, God revealed them. Through the spirit, for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. To us who believe, God has revealed through the Spirit those things which are once hidden. In other words, it's no longer a secret to us. It has now been revealed to us, to every born-again believer, to the spiritual man saved by grace, by the Holy Spirit. We now have the, the capacity to comprehend the mystery of God that was once hidden. The Holy Spirit aids the born-again believer in discovering the secret riches and the treasures that are ours in Christ. 
I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three. He says, for this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the spirit of the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height of depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses the knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Boy, and that's my prayer. It's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me. Oh Lord, I know that as long as I live, I'm never gonna exhaust the depths of God's love. As long as I grow as a believer, this is exciting. There's never a day that we can come and say, I've learned it all. I finally figured it all out. I've, I finally got it all worked out. No, we continue to learn. And we continue to learn and we continue to learn because God has more and more to show us. In fact, I really believe that when we get to heaven, it's gonna be an eternity of learning new things. An eternity of just God revealing himself more and more and more. And believer, I wanna challenge you with this, that you desire to grow because there's so much that the Lord wants to show you about himself. See, only the spiritual person who knows Christ, totally reliant upon the Holy Spirit, is capable of this kind of wisdom. And Paul says, I want this for you, Corinthians. I want you to discover. You see, the carnal flesh has no business trying to understand God or do God's work. The carnality cannot do it. For who among men, verse 11, knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. The natural person that is limited in understanding. He cannot understand. But he says in verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we do also speak, in, and not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. We who believe, you know, we have the capacity of knowing God and the riches of what he's freely given to us. I mean, I, I love the fact that while everyone and all the philosophies are out there looking for the meaning and the purpose of life, that I have it. I know the purpose of life because I know Jesus. I know the purpose and the meaning or the meaning of life because I know Jesus. I know forgiveness because I know Jesus. I know the hope of an eternity because I know Jesus. Spiritual truths, spiritual words require spiritual minds and spiritual ears to understand. Frequently you look at Jesus when he teaches the parables at the close of them in Matthew 13, he'll, he'll say something like this, you know, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, what is he saying? He's not saying, well, do you have physical ears? We all got physical ears. But not everyone can hear spiritual things. If you have ears, he says, I want you to hear what the Spirit is teaching you. Only those with spiritual ears can hear them. And all the letters in, to the churches in Revelation, he concludes his message with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, a spiritual message requires spiritual ears to understand. I mean, to the disciples, Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes because they see in your ears, because they hear 
For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Paul is saying, listen, I want you people to understand you're a blessed people. You have the capacity to grow and to learn in the riches of God and to, to, to come to such fruitfulness. He says, but a natural man, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For their foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritually, spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But, he says, we have the mind of Christ. The natural man without Jesus will not, cannot accept spiritual things. It's an impossibility. They must be spiritually appraised. Apart from the Holy Spirit's power, nothing is there. He says, but, and I love this, we have the mind of Christ. We have it. If you're born again and you have the Spirit within you and he's working in you, he's given access to the mind of Christ. And where's Paul going with all of this? Paul is teaching these carnal Corinthians the futility of leaning upon human wisdom to discern spiritual truth, of thinking that somehow your carnal mind will ever serve the purposes of God. He's teaching them that at all times as believers, we're 100% dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit for spiritual growth, and that it is utter folly for anyone to boast in their own carnal wisdom or to think that they can produce anything of true spiritual value by means of human wisdom or by the flesh. Carnal living or carnal thinking can only lead to carnal living. And the Bible says no flesh will ever glory in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1.29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Only that which is of the Spirit has value to the believer. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Our flesh is our problem. It has always been our problem. It will always be our problem. This flesh cannot and will not serve the purposes of God. I am dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Romans 8, he says, for those who are according to the flesh that set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see that there? Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, in Galatians, as Paul speaking to them, these are another church that had lost its way, Paul reminds them of the fact that the flesh is always at war with the spirit. That with all of us, there's kind of this inner struggle, this battle that is taking place between the spirit of God and our flesh. He says in Galatians 5, 1, he says, or 16, but I say to you, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another 
so that you may not do the things that you please, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh, he says, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sexual, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissension, and factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness and self-control. Against such things, he says, there is no law against such things. He says, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is so important for not just the Corinthians to understand, this is for us. Our flesh is powerless to live for Christ, much less bear the fruit of Christ. Paul comes to the Corinthian church with a simple message of the cross, determined to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? So that the message of the cross might be received in the power of the spirit and not by the flesh. You know, I think that an act of, to think and act according to the flesh can only produce the fruit of the flesh. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, he said 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. He said, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 90% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. This is what Paul is saying. The carnal Christian will never produce anything of real spiritual value. God has given to us the ability, the capacity to grow on and to grow in the grace of God. And only the spiritual person who sets his mind on Christ will ever really be able to discern the truth of God and do the works of God. That only the spiritual person seeking the mind of Christ and him crucified has been granted the keys of understanding the mysteries of God and the riches that are ours in Christ. That only the spiritual man seeking the mind of Christ will be capable of bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And against Paul's point in all this, and we'll see it throughout Corinthians, is no flesh will ever glory in the presence of Christ. A carnal Christian with the mind of the flesh cannot and will not please God. While the born-again believer, you know, we have the capacity to understand it takes exercise of faith and of growth and of surrender. Jesus made it quite clear when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that famous quote said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Now, one of the things that we often miss as believers is that we think that sometimes that the only thing that has ever mattered to God was that one day we gave our life to Jesus. Oh, that was important. Don't get me wrong. It was a great day when we placed our faith in him for our salvation. But that's just the beginning. It's like he saved us from four. We've seen this so recently in our study in Jude. That when God took the children of Israel out of Egypt... He was taking them to the land of promise, but they had to go through the wilderness to get there. See, God's purpose isn't just to save us so that we can have an eternity. He wants us to grow 
and to manifest his love and his grace in this world. And I want to ask you, believer, are you a growing Christian? Are you a growing Christian? If you look at your life today as opposed to last year, have you grown? Or maybe you're just right back where you were in the very beginning. You say, well, my life's never really changed that much. I'm telling you, if that's where you are, something is very, very wrong. The Lord would love to change that. If you're not a joyful Christian, I wonder, are you still trying to live by the works of the flesh? Maybe you're that one who's living with one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus, and you find yourself, I'm just discontent with all of it. And maybe you're kind of blaming it all on God, like, oh, Lord, you're not meeting your end of the bargain. But I want to tell you something. The Lord invites us as his children to come before him in humility. And he has a whole world of riches for us if we continue to grow and we continue to seek his face. This is my heart for you. This has always been my heart. I get a thrill out of watching Christians grow. I get a thrill of watching transformation take place. I get a thrill of watching people who were once one way and watching the Lord change them and transform them. And I've seen it with so many of you. There's more that God has for you. You're never at a place where you can say, I'm finished, I'm done. There's more he has for you. We've been given the capacity to discover the wealth and the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. And I pray, believer, that God gives you the yearning of saying, look, and I want to be done with me. I want to grow. I want to grow and I want to be fruitful. And I want to see the fruit of the Spirit just manifested by what God does in my life. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.